Bob. Oh, there you are. Hey, Bob, Karen, good to see you. Hello. Good to see you. I've been waiting. Actually, I've been trying to be slow in my words because I was hoping you guys would get on. Um, That's very kind. Melody, you're drinking that wine in front of us like it has no effect. I'm watching you drink that wine, and all I all I can think is, I went, oh, don't put that up. <laughs> God, all I can think is, I'd like some, I'd like one a bottle or some wine myself. Anyway, let's start. Let's start. Any of you have any prayer request? We're we're going to go back to that. So, any prayer request tonight? What's going on? Any prayer requests? Wow, well, I'm going to go again. Um, I always have a prayer request. <laughs> There's always somebody to No, pray bless your soul, Connie. Don't apologize at all. But Don't. Tomorrow is uh, Joe's uh, surgery. I think we I mentioned him last week, and I know it's such a delicate surgery, and he's having so many prob problems already before the surgery even starts. So... If we can just pray for the doctors and pray for him that uh, this final surgery will go well. Yeah, good, good for you, good for you. Connie, say again his name and what's going on. I've his name is uh, Joe. Joe Boychuk. what? Sorry. Joe Boychuk. 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 Yeah. And he had his corpus spina bifida, but uh, he's like I think he's like forty-five or forty-seven, something like that. But nevertheless, he was doing pretty good. But then something happened with his spinal cord. There's some tissue or something wrapped around his spinal cord, and it's causing him, you know, great pain. And he's bent over. And so they're they're actually they've been to several doctors, but they're finally going to do a surgery tomorrow yeah. at uh, UT Southwestern. Yeah. Okay. So. What's your name? Joe. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you, um, your presence with us through this day. Um, God, we live in a world unlike, it. I mean, I, when I think about comparisons, I think about ancient Egypt or Alexandria or Babylon. We live in a world in which the material comforts are so great, so seductive, we, we think we live such complete lives because we're surrounded by comfort that it's easier and easier to forget you and I think it's easier and easier to look past dark things, sins, spiritual <laughs> struggles, um, the darker things. We, it's, we're invited to live on surfaces. It's much easier to live there. It's much harder to live with, live with you because it means facing crosses and um, burdens and sorrows. Oh, God. In the poem that we're going to read tonight, it talks about an impossible thing, that one thing happened that none of us would ever expect to happen. A god went to a cross and died. How can a god die? Gods are immortal. You did, God, you did that for us. You took a divine life and took it to a cross. As a way of encouraging us to remember that no matter how bad things get, whatever their struggles are, to not give up, to not despair, to stay with you, to not let this world take us over. So I ask for a special prayer for all of us. Uh, we wouldn't be here if it weren't for you. Strengthen us, please, in your grace. Um, help us all. And, and 
in light of what we're doing to find a grace strength in each other we're all here the fact that we're here gives us a strength we keep showing up week after week um, I ask a special blessing on all the Seton participants the parishioners and and sorry Mary Jane and those from St. Francis um, who are here we're here to find a strength that we don't have on our own so continue to bless us help us to get better at turning to you for guidance um, to grow in humility in courage to take you to the world particularly where we have to take hard stands um, because doing it will may cause problems in our families and cause people um, who don't believe in you to look at us as bigoted and prejudiced. So strengthen us please in our efforts and help us to find a strength in these readings to, to know that there, there are these resources of goodness in our readings that make up our faith. Um, I ask for a special blessing on Joe this week. Um, be with him. Protect him, please. Give the doctors who are watching over him sure minds and sure hands. Um, and bless Connie. Um, and the fact that she's there with a the swimming pool, let all the mosquitoes eat her up tonight. Um, she's, she's by swimming pool and we're here suffering. Her, um, bless that heart of hers, her great heart, the, the way she carries people in her heart in prayers. Keep her strong in those prayers. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Stephanie, I want you to know, I, I, I should have said something about you. I didn't get that in. I'll get you in next week if you're here next week. <laughs> I'm going to do my best. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yes. You mentioned uh, that it reminds you, these times remind you of the church in Babylon? I wasn't thinking of the church, it was the city, that those ancient cities were so highly civilized, so materially comfortable, you know, that, so, but go ahead, go ahead. Oh, okay, I was just going to tell you that I've got a book that's pretty good about that, and it's called The Church in Babylon. Wow. Wow. <laughs> just made me think of it. Um, wow. It's a women's group doing a study on it. And wow. it, it talks about kind of the things that we're facing now with Christians, you know, kind of leaving the church. Yep, yep. It's not a Catholic book. Yep. But well, it may be Catholic in spirit, you know. Yeah, well, it's something <laughs> I get the feeling the author doesn't like Catholic Catholicism much. No. But not not real heavily. It's just a yeah. Yeah. I do. Yeah. I do. <laughs> Even when we're stupid and <laughs> foolish. Wait till we get to Chaucer and see what he does with Catholics. <laughs> um, hold on, I'm just letting Tess in. Tonight, what I'd like to do... You want, the, you want a copy, Doc? Tonight, what I'd like to do is um, take some time with this poem. Um, I'm going to mute you guys... Um, just for clarity purposes, you know, 
because I've been told that it helps. But any Stephanie, you haven't been around for a while, but I mute everybody, but I, I just want to encourage everybody knows if you have questions, if Suzanne's, usually, Suzanne's right here, usually correcting me. If I say Achilles when I mean, you know, Aeneas, she's there telling me Aeneas. So I've got some help here. But if you guys, if I'm saying something that's confusing because I do it more and more often, my mind is going. Um, and you, you are confused, don't hesitate to jump in. If you've got a question, don't hesitate to jump in, okay? Um, so I'll mute you all, but, um, but please don't hesitate. Tess, I saw that you came on. I don't see an image of you, but welcome. I'm glad you're here. Um, and if any of you, if um, I keep missing, I keep trying to do everything I can to get Dave and Kay to show an image, but they're not going to do it. Because <laughs> I miss seeing both of them, but um, God, I'd like to get back into a room. But anyway, I'm going to start. Um, I'm going to mute you guys and start. Tonight, um, how do I do this? How do I mute all? Share invite, I don't. Sorry, I'm, I, this is all, I don't know how to do this. It's not giving me a mute button. I, anyway, um, tonight what I'd like to do is read from the poem, and you know that, that my practice is to read a, a short lyric and make very few comments and then go on to the major work. Tonight I'm going to read from Odd's poem, Hore Canonicae, Imolatus Vicerate, Canonical Hours, um, Christ, um, Christ Crucified Victorious. Remember, the, the poem is structured according to the hours, the hours, the, the hours according to the monastic life. So um, if you go through the poem, you go from prime to terse, to sex, to none, to vespers, to compline, and then to lauds. So through the day, the monks would gather for community prayer. And there was a, a prayer, set prayers, um, recitative prayers, according to the hours. What Auden did was take the canonical hours and use them as a, um, a principle for structuring his poem. So there's no explicit connection except um, the structure. We have to make the connections ourselves, um, whatever's going on in his mind. Um, and I wanted to take more time tonight because I think in the third section what he's doing in my mind is amazing and it's convicting, it's troubling. It's a, it's a troubling um, section and I think it's important for all of us to hear it. So instead of just reading with a few comments, I'm going to go over the poem thoroughly even though that's going to take more of our time up tonight, okay? For those of you who don't have a copy, go go online. You all know the address. Stephanie, you haven't been around. I don't know what you know what you're familiar with, but we have the blog. Oh, you got it. Bless your soul. I should I should not have doubted. Knowing you. In fact, I know you've got it organized in some folder along with other things. <laughs> Look. God, I'm so glad to see you back. It gives me one more person to heap coals on. It's just <laughs> if you know what that means, you're right. <laughs> anyway. Um, if any of you don't have it, just go online to the Literature's Prophecy and go to the content page, go to the bottom, to the C's um, option, 
to uh, the poetry and you'll get option, I mean, you'll get Auden and print it off. It's, it's, I think it would help if you had it in front of you because it's a long poem. It's like T.S. Eliot's quartets. If we stay together long enough, we're going to get to T.S. Eliot's quartets, which are, in my mind, the, the hardest, the, the most perfect poetry, lyric poetry of the 20th century and the hardest, and he's Christian. Um, and he's writing to a non-Christian audience. So it makes it even difficult, more difficult to get through. Okay. Hore Kanonike, the Amolitas Vicherit. The canonical hours, Christ immolated, Christ sacrificed, victorious. Okay. Remember in the first section, the prime, it's the first hour of the day at dawn, um, the poem begins simultaneously, as soundlessly, spontaneously, suddenly, as at the vaunt of the dawn, the kind gates of the body fly open to its world beyond the gates of the mind. The horn gate and the ivory gate swing to, swing shut instantaneously, quell the nocturnal rummage of its rebellious frond, ill-favored, ill-natured, and second-rate, disenfranchised, widowed, and orphaned by a historical mistake, the fall. So, um, and it's interesting, those of you who have read Virgil now, you know that the gates of ivory and the gates of horn were the two gates that led from the underworld to the life, and Aeneas had to choose between them. We talked about that. And he chose the ivory gate, and the ivory gates were the gates of illusion. So he went back into the world um, carrying illusions with him. The ivory gates were the true gates. Here, Auden is describing that moment when each one of us awakes from our sleep and we put to rest that unconscious with all of its dark rummage, the violence, the nightmares, the dark things that typically we don't want to look at in our conscious life. It's a dark world. We shut that world away, we enter the world, and then what happens is, as Auden presents it, similar to what happened to Adam before the fall. It's as if we share an innocence with Adam for a moment before we act. But once we act, Doc, once we act, um, our, our fall um, begins to come into play. And before we know it, we, we do something even without being aware of it, that's going to have a negative effect on somebody else. So the first part ends, and I, the Adam, sinless in our beginning, Adam still previous to any act before the fall. It's like for a moment when we wake up, we return to that innocence that Adam enjoyed um, um, without, without realizing that we're in a fallen world. I draw breath, this of course to wish, no matter what, to be wise, to be different, to die, and the cost. No matter how is paradise lost, of course, and myself owing a death. So behind this innocent presentation of waking from sleep, entering the world, we carry a lost paradise, and um, the fact that we owe God a life. 
we commit a sin, um, we carry our original disobedience. All of the crimes that we face daily, murder, adultery, stealing, envy, whatever they are, they are nothing, nothing, Holocaust, millions of people dying, they are nothing next to what we did to God. We disobeyed God. We lost our world with Him. The Eagle Ridge, or the Eagle Ridge, the Steady Sea, the flat roofs of the fishing village, all asleep. This ready flesh, no honest equal, but my accomplice now, my assassin to be, and my name, stands for my historical share of care for a dying, a dying self-made city. Afraid of our living task, the dying which the coming day will ask of us. According to our faith, we enter each day being asked by Christ to give our lives up. Do we do it? Do we do it? Terse, the second prayer, the third hour of the day, usually mid-morning. I love this section because, remember, it describes the beginning. After shaking paws with his dog, whose bark would tell the world that he is always kind, the hangman sets off. The judge follows him. The hang this is so crucial. Listen to this line. <coughs> The hangman sets off briskly over the heath. He does not know yet who will be provided to do the high works of justice with. Why does Auden use that word provided? This is the hangman. And you know he's going to be followed by the judge. Hold on, let me... To do the high works of justice with gently closing the door of his wife's bedroom. Today she has one of her headaches. I mean, obviously he wants to be left alone. With a sigh, the judge descends his marble stair. He does not know by what sentence he will apply on earth the law that rules the stars. And the poet, taking a breather around his garden before starting his eclogue, does not know whose truth he will tell. So a hangman and a judge and a poet all set off, but the words to des describing the hangman was, he does not know yet who will be provided to do the high works of justice with. What does that strange phrasing mean, to be provided with? Heather, do you have something? Yeah, it kind of implies a sacrifice of sorts. Yep. Like, a, you know, like God provided a ram. Right. That's or the Jews provided a sheep, a lamb. That there will yes. be a sacrifice provided. Yes. So... Hold on to that, because that's already a giveaway. The hangman says he does not know who will be provided. So they're going to have, somebody's got to provide something for the world to go on. So that's a description of the hangman, his language, and the, the judge. Um, he does not know by what sentence he will apply on earth the law that rules the stars. That in whatever decision he hands down, He's putting into effect the high orders of the universe, the stars, you know, the law that rules. So he's going to see himself enacting this, grace, this great bit of justice. And the poet sets off not knowing, you know, to, to write an ecologue, not knowing whose truth he will tell. So everybody sets off thinking, approaching the day, that it will be just another day doing what they do, Okay but already implied 
is a sacrifice. Something's, somebody's going to be sacrificed. And let me make it right now. We'll see in a minute the overarching um, theme here. But let's just say it, it's, um, it's, a, it's a black man from a black community shot a policeman. Or let it be a policeman who had his knee on a black American who died. And the policeman's going to go to jail. Let's say he executed. Somebody's going to go to jail and likely be executed. Justice will do its high job. There will be people executed. Okay. I'm so sorry, you guys. We in at um, at Francis. We just finished um, some time ago. Dostoevsky's Brothers Karamazov. In that book, we we you can't read it without seeing all these trials take place involving a priest, a soldier, um, bright people, good people, and almost nobody, nobody gets it right on any man. There's a man in the middle of the book who, uh, who comes to love Zosimov, who's a young man before his conversion, who committed a murder. And everybody makes judgments about him afterwards. They deny his murder, even though he confesses it because they love him. Nobody reads him right. One of the things we learn from Dostoevsky, we learn from Plato, and I think what we're already learning, that even though the world calls us to justice, we can never completely know another human being. Never. We do the best we can when we enact acts of justice. But for us to think that we know everything about a man, so even if we send him to the, let's say, to an execution, there are things about him we won't know. Only God knows the soul. He's the searcher of souls. We don't. So behind this poem is the sense that there's going to be a victim. Somebody's going to be executed. The judge is off, the hangman's off, the poet's off to tell his stories. Okay. In the, in the second section of the terse, sprites of hearth and storeroom, godlings of professional mysteries, the big ones who can annihilate a city cannot be bothered with this moment. We are left each to his secret cult. Now each of us prays to an image of his prays to an image of an image of himself. <laughs> We want to create these fictions and present them as if they're real, and we pray to that. You know, that's what we present to the world. Um, we want to set out on the day, behaving like we don't want to behave like an ass in front of the girls. Let something exciting happen. Let me find a lucky coin on the sidewalk. Let me hear a new funny story. Let me go on. Let me have the day that I wanted. Let me take my vacations. Let me take my breaks. Let me have my weekends. Let me watch my sport events. Let me do what I want to do. Let the day be good. And then it ends the, the second section. At this hour, we all might be anyone. It is only our victim who is without a wish, who knows already that is what we can never forgive. He's going to be the victim. We're going to make him a victim, whatever we do. That is what we can never forgive. If he knows the answers, then why are we here? Why is there even dust? He knows already that, in fact, our prayers are heard, that not one of us will slip up, that the machinery of our world will function without a hitch, that today, for once, there will be no squabbling on Mount Olympus, 
with the CEO and our supervisors, whoever they are. Nocthonian mutters of unrest, but no other miracle knows that by sundown we shall have had a Good Friday. So everybody in the city wants to treat this day as if it's just any other day. They want to go through the day without any difficulties to get home so they can say, I've had a good day. Without having any sense that the irony is this particular day happens to be Good Friday. Okay? So everybody following? Okay? So that's where we've been. Those are the first two sections. Okay? Is everybody ready for the third? You guys have a sense of the poem? Any questions before we... Because I didn't read through the whole thing, but I'm going to read the whole sext, the third section, because to me it's stunning uh, and, and convicting. So the truth is I'm glad to share being convicted with other people. <laughs> Bless your souls. God. Okay, you ready? Any questions on the first two sections on, on prime and, and terse? Okay. Sext. I'm going to read the whole section. I, um, I wasn't planning to do this, but I think it's too important. So here we go. Sext. This is the sixth hour after sunrise. It's noon. So this is around noontime, the pitch of the day. Okay. You need not see. You need not see what someone's doing to know if it's his vocation. You have only to watch his eyes, a cook mixing a sauce, a surgeon marking a primary incision, a surgery taking place, making a primary incision, a clerk completing a bill of lading, wear the same rapt expression, forgetting themselves in a function. They are so focused on something that we know that that's a calling. They're different from other people because other people get distracted, they're not as focused, but these people have a sense of purpose to what they're doing, okay? Whether it's a bill of lading, a cook, or a surgeon. How beautiful it is that I on the object look. To ignore the appetitive goddesses, to desert the formidable shrines of Rhea, Aphrodite, Demeter, Diana, to pray instead to Saint um, Focus, Saint Barbara, Saturnino, or whoever one's patron is, that one may be worthy of their mystery, what a prodigious step to have taken. So to move away from the pagan gods that are preoccupied in the world, whatever they happen to be, you know, Aphrodite, Demeter, Diamida, or Diana, Rhea, interesting, those are all feminine goddesses attached to the earth so that something earthly captivates us, holds our Desire, our appetites or desires. But to take that step towards um, Focus or Barbara or Saturnino is to move in the direction of um, what you, when, you, when you give up your life, when, you, when you're martyred. Because one of the differences between them and the other goddesses is unlike the Greek goddesses that he just listed, every one of those saints was martyred. <clears throat> so He's describing people who, are so, who have a calling, whose calling is visible because they're so focused on what they do. There's this step away from being preoccupied with the world to these saints. Okay. 
There should be monuments, there should be odes to the nameless heroes who took it first, that first step, to the first flaker of flints who forgot his dinner, who was so preoccupied, didn't even think about eating, the first collector of seashells to remain celibate. I love that because it seems nonsensical. I think this, somebody jump in here, if you've got another thought. I think the, the, the identity here is that the people who tend to pick up seashells are romantic and so given to desires, you know, romantic desires. But he's saying here that those who pick them up remain celibate. So even though there's that romantic desire, they chose against it. Where should we be but for them? Feral, still animal-like. Unhouse-trained, still wandering through forests without a consonant to our names. Slaves of dame kind, wanting to do good, wanting to be nice, wanting to be kind. Consonant to our names, slaves of dame kind, lacking all notions of a city, and at this noon, for this death, there would be no agents. We owe all these people something, because it's only because of their efforts, the fact that they are so purposeful in what they do, that we're elevated out of this feral, primitive condition, living at this village, pre-village life, okay? So they all serve as agents to help us attain a higher level of civilization of existence, okay? Second section. So the first section is about these, these people who have a calling. They're so purposeful in what, we, what they do that they help elevate us out of this primitive condition that we'd be left in without them. Second section. You need not hear what orders he's given to know if someone has authority. You have only to watch his mouth when a besieging general sees a city wall breached by his troops could they sacrifice their lives if somebody in authority didn't say, you take that city, men are going to go there and give up their lives in order to follow his authority. City wall breached by his troops when a bacteriologist realizes in a flash what was wrong with his hypotheses when, from a glance at the jury, the pr prosecutor knows the defendant will hang. Their lips and the lines around them relax, assuming an expression not of simply pleasures at getting their own sweet way, but of satisfaction at being right. The jury. So here we're back to a judge, maybe a different judge, but a judge deciding on a case, a prosecutor and a jury, and arriving at that point where um, they can put a closure on this case with some sense that they were right. That's what they're left with. Not of getting simple pleasure, getting their own way, their own sweet way, but of satisfaction of being, at being right. An incarnation of fortitudo justitia nous. Fortitude or courage, justice, and nous, a present nous, a presence of mind. You know, having a mind to make a decision. The authority, in, in this case a jury, to decide the fate of some guy. You may not like them much who does, but we owe them basilicas, divas, dictionaries, pastoral verse, the courtesies of the city. Without these judicial mouths, which belong, for the most part, to very great scoundrels, 
how squalid existence would be, tethered for life to some hut village, afraid of the local snake or the local four demon, speaking the local patois, the familiar language, of some 300 words, this small culture identified with this, you know, small language, familiar language. Speaking the local patois of some 300 words, think of the family squabbles and the poison pens, think of the inbreeding. At this noon, there would be no authority to command this death. So once again, we've got a high office, somebody doing something, but the f product of it will be a death. Um, third section, anywhere you like, somewhere on earth, chested life giving earth, anywhere between her thirstlands and the undrinkable ocean, the crowd stands perfectly still. Now focus really clearly on what he's saying about this crowd. The first section dealt with these people who have a calling. That's the word he uses. The second section deals with these people who have authority. If you took either one away, we would not have this city. I hope you see the timing right now because we've just gotten through with Virgil and we've been talking about the importance of the city. That the city is the very greatest thing that man can create, but it came out of a violence. Cain killed Abel. He was sent into exile from God. The city came into existence when man attempted to live, to create a world in which he could live without God. So the city is this great testimony to the greatness of man. But there are paradoxes, we, and we've touched on them in Virgil, right? Um, <clears throat> anywhere you like, somewhere on earth, anywhere between her thirst lands, the crowd, the crowd stands perfectly still, its eyes, which seem one, and its mouths, which seem infinitely many, expressionless, perfectly blank. The crowd does not see what everyone sees, a boxing match, a train wreck, a battleship being launched, does not wonder, as everyone wonders, who will win, what flag she will fly, how many will be burned alive, is never distracted, as everyone is always distracted, by a barking dog, a smell of fish, a mosquito, and a bald head. So, the crowd is distinguished from everybody else only in the sense that it seems fixed, while everybody else can get distracted by a boat leaving, a sportsman, a sportsman, whatever it is. The crowd sees only one thing, which only the crowd can see. An epiphany of that which does whatever is done. Whatever God a person believes in, in whatever way he believes, no two are exactly alike, is one of the crowd he believes and only believes in that in which there's only one way of believing. Few people accept each other and most will never do anything properly. But the crowd rejects no one. Joining the crowd is the only thing men can do. Amen. Is the only thing all men can do. Only because of that can we say all men are our brothers. Superior because of that to the social exoskeletons we were insides out. When have they ever ignored their queens? Notice it's women. The, I mean, the, the pull, the attraction of queens, the women. For one second, stop work on their provincial cities to worship the prince of this world like us 
at this noon on this hill in the occasion of this dying. Now I'd like to just leave the first two sections. We, the first one is about these people who have a calling, very focused, and he makes it clear the city could not come into existence without them. It's only because of them that the city comes into existence. In the second, these are men of authority. They have the power to command, the judge, the jury, the, the, the commander of an army. Um, helps bring a city into condition. And here, on the third one, he's describing a crowd. And he sets off by distinguishing it from everybody else. You know, people can get distracted. But the crowd has an identity of its own. The crowd sees only one thing which only the crowd can see. An epiphany of that which does whatever is done. Okay. The crowd rejects no one. Joining in the crowd is the only thing all men can do. Only because of that can we say all men are our brothers. When, they, when have they ever ignored their queens for one second, stopped work on their provincial cities to worship the prince of this world like us at this noon on this hill in the occasion of this dying? Now, what's going on? We can take each three. The focus on the first is the people have a calling. The second is the authority. The third is the crowd. Put the three together. What's the action? You know that by now what that word means. It's like a plot. It's an action. What's the theme, the action of those three sections of um, the sext? Okay. This is noonday prayer. The reason we're going to spend time on this, sorry, instead of doing what we generally do, this is a long poem. It's modeled on the canonical hours, on the prayer life of the monks in the monasteries. But he situates it in our life, it's city life. Um, when I think about the poetry of, we haven't done this enough, but if, when I think about the poetry of Robert Frost, if you, we haven't done enough, but if you look at Frost's poetry, you'll see Frost generally presents a kind of pastoral surface, farm life, everything's quaint and innocent. But underneath that pastoral surface are horrors, real disorders. It's one of the ironies about Frost. Everybody thought he was the sweet pastoral poet. <laughs> He's one of the most ironic American poets in our history. He shows this very dark life, but the point of bringing him in here is that when you read Frost, you become aware of strong contrast. Pastoral surface, something difficult. The beauty of Odd's poem is that he situated in us in a fallen life. But it's a fallen life that mo in which all of us are involved and very few of us are aware that it's fallen. We just live it. So the ironies in this poem are much, this poem are much more subtle. So, how do we understand the crowd? What is this crowd? Um, and how does it relate to this victim that's been implied in the, in the first two prayer sections? I'll give it a shot. <clears throat> Good. The crowd is watching an execution. It could be Jesus on the cross. It could be an old-fashioned 
hanging when they would out in the old wild west they they'd hang someone um and each person decides i i love that description of the crowd like they're all focused on the one action even though that's not possible because each person is maybe distracted but when you look at the crowd as one they're all focused on this one thing making the decision based on how they're feeling about it you know their belief system whether this person is innocent or guilty whether the police could have made a mistake or the judge could have made a mistake it all depends on how they believe um uh and i let me think let me go back I'm probably not getting this. No, you're good. You're good. Um, I want some of your wine, but you're good. Let me jump in if I can, Melody. No, I, everything you're saying is good. I, I'm going to try to tie this down a little bit more if I can. The crowd sees only one thing. Let, let it be whatever it is. I mean, Melody listed a number of possibilities. The crowd sees only one thing, which only the crowd can see. An epiphany of that which does whatever is done. Explain that. And put it together with... But the crowd rejects no, and joining the crowd is the only thing all men can do. Only because of that can we say all men are, are brothers. Superior because of that. So when the crowd gets together, apparently they can save each other. We're all brothers. We're together. And I just I want to focus on those two lines because they go to the nature of the crowd instead of the subtleties that I think are part of this poem. So what do you do with this line? The crowd sees only one thing, which only the crowd can see, an epiphany of that which does whatever is done. And we call each other brothers. Can you throw any light on that, Melody? Or any of you? Well, I'm, I'm not sure about the epiphany part, but um, I believe that the crowd feels like they're brothers because they are not the actors. They are separated from that. So in one sense, they're all together experiencing this. So, and since they're not necessarily responsible for it, that's why they feel like they're all in the same boat. They're now, all brothers. Now go to that line. An epiphany of that, I mean, you already said epiphany, but leave epiphany out for a second. What unites them is they're joined by seeing things in this way, which having this view. Um, an epiphany of that which does whatever is done. Yeah, hold on. It goes back to that line, Heather. You just because remember, it goes back to that line, the subtlety of that line where it said about the hangman. He does not know yet who will be provided. It's not the same, but the subtlety that those phrases are giveaway. Here's another giveaway phrase, which does whatever is done. Sorry, Heather. Go ahead. No, I. I it, it's profound because I think. It's talking about how the crowd acts as an entity and its job is to react the way that it's been cued to react. So, gosh, you think about all the different crowds we've had, right? You've got all the, the mobs and the, you know, Biden has his crowd, Trump has his crowd, like everybody has a crowd. And the job of the crowd is to 
react in a, in a way that's kind of been prompted. And I think that's what he's saying. It, it, and it's for them to have an epiphany about how they're supposed to react and then react accordingly. That is the epiphany. I mean, it's, right. know, it's yeah. Um, anybody else on this? How does this relate to the victim that's been implied? Remember, all, almost all the sections in, if I can just, just give me a second here. First section, for a living, self-made city, afraid of our living, our living task, the dying which the coming day will ask. That's the end of the first prime. The end of terse. Um, there will be no problems. We'll come home and say, we had a nice day. No Chthonian mutters of unrest, but no other miracle knows that by sundown we shall have had a good Friday. The irony of that. We want every day to be just another day. The irony is that it's Good Friday. Something's missing. So the ironies are stark and very subtle. The sext ends, the first section. And at this noon, for this death, there would be no agents. Without those agents, we would not have this. We'd be in a primitive condition somewhere. The second section, at this noon, there would be no authority to command this death. The third section, um, when have they ever, the crowd, when have they ever ignored their queens for one second stop work on their provincial cities to worship the prince of this world like us at this noon on this hill in the occasion of this dying? Every one of the sections ends with some allusion, some comment to a death taking place. Who's the prince of this world, too? Doctor, could you hear see? Could you hear Suzanne? Devil. Can you speak up? Satan. Why? Yeah, that's what we were saying. Because he is the prince of this world. He rules this world. Can you guys hear? Can you and speak up, Todd? Because God gave him this world to rule over man. What are the ironies here? Anybody? What's going on? What's going on? We got a manipulated crowd with mob mentality. Just. Going after what they're riled up to do. Yeah. And it's Christ they're after. Has everybody seen the irony between the city as this great, great thing, um, and yet the cost of it that nobody seems to want to see? Is everybody aware of that irony? It's so subtle, but it's there. Go ahead. Somebody, did somebody come in? I'm... The, the other thing is, is that he also says that joining the crowd is the only thing all men can do. Yeah. So those in authority, those, the, the ones who um, have purpose, the commoner, everybody can be part of the crowd at some point. And that's the only job that everyone can do. As opposed to not everyone can be an authority, not everyone can have this sort of purpose-filled life um, where they are set apart, but everyone can be part of the crowd. Now take that, Heather, I mean you're absolutely right on, take that and relate it to what you said earlier about the character of the crowd, what defines it as, a, as an entity. This line, this line, an epiphany of that which does whatever is done. 
What does what, how does that define the crowd? Do, do, describe the mentality or the spirit or whatever characteristic you want to relate to the crowd in that line from that line. It it becomes of one mind. Like but one they, mind of what? Um. One mind. Of, well, I don't know. Maybe one mind of doing like that, that phrase, which does whatever is done. It's so inexact, but at the same moment, you know, it's so, in, it's such an inexact phrase that does whatever is done. So it's like, I think it's a, I think it's a really, ex, I think it's a really exact phrase. Oh, you think it is? Exact? Oh yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It goes to what you and Melody are both sort of struggling with here together and um, let me, here, let me, um, God, I don't know how to do this. Anybody other thought I, before I offer a so thought the here? Whatever, so you're saying the whatever is done is something specific. Well, I mean. That he, being is what we kind of need to nail down is the. It's the Here, let me, okay. But, yeah, it's a generalization, but it specifies the nature of the crowd. And that is, okay. I thought you put it well earlier. It's that it's like a fate that, that. What's going to happen is already decided. The way that you put it earlier, you know, it's done. So the 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 burden of free will, the burden of making a choice, the burden of separating from the crowd, the burden of taking responsibility. I, I hope everybody's going because this is where it's going. When Pilate said, "You choose," what did the crowd do? What did they say? All of them. Crucify. Heather, they, what what did they say? They give us Barabbas. No, they said crucify him, kill him. Yeah, crucify him. They said and crucify they, him. They, one mind, one mind. Yeah. So what is what is Auden pointing to as a characteristic of the city, the the general? You know, every, somebody get distracted. So you're going to have people watching a sports events. The NBA finals are going on. The baseball finals are going on. People are going to notice a mosquito on a guy's head. You know, whatever it will be, the flag a ship raises as it goes out of port. People are, people are going to be. But the crowd as a crowd distinguishes itself as an ending of the city. How? By this mindset that rests on a scapegoating mechanism. That somebody will have to pay for our sins. So what we've been watching in this whole thing, and this is amazing, this poem by Auden's predated a work by a guy named René Girard, whose most famous works have to do with um, scapegoating. That his argument, which I think is a compelling argument, is that everything that goes on in life is a product of scapegoating mechanism. That when we set out on the day, we set out, with, we can have the best intentions of the world. We will want to do everything well, somebody's is going to be a scapegoat of our activities. We will blame somebody. We will justify ourselves. And in that sense, we enter into this, this world that came into being when Cain was exiled and Enoch founded the first city. The, the ultimate expression of that is Christ on a cross. But the, its multiform expressions that have a that play a role in our lives every day are whoever these victims are. They can be in our families, they can be in our communities, they can be some guys who's going to be sentenced to death in a courtroom. Um, remember what I said earlier that justice, we have to perform justice. 
It, it's something we're called to do. But there's a difference between performing a justice and thinking we understand this guy and he deserves to go to hell or heaven or the second command, the fourth commandment I think is don't take the name of God in vain. That does not mean don't swear. It means don't speak for God. It's, It's not our place to determine final ends. Only God knows that. We cannot see the depths of human beings. We just don't know them. But one of the things that defines our lives is that there is this tendency in all of us to find a scapegoat, to to put somebody in our place before we will die to each other. And it's it's so it's underneath the civilization. So, and one of the one of the reasons it's so appropriate to me right now is because we just finished we finished Virgil. You know, we talked about it. For Virgil, the city is the most extraordinary. It's the most extraordinary manifestation of the greatness of man that we can create this world of our own. It's a cosmos. It's a cosmos. Can't cosmoliton. I can't remember the word, but it's a cosmos of our own. It's this great thing. And we act like we can make it perfect without God. But the cost of it is this scapegoating. There will always be a victim. We can set out, now go back to the poem. We can set out in the morning. We can identify with Adam when we wake up before we act. We can go into our life with the best of intentions. You know, we've got a sense of purpose, this calling. Um, We want the day to go well. Let me find a lucky coin. Let me hear a new story. I want to get home so I can say, it's a good day today. You know, with no sense that, um, no Chthonian mutters of unrest, nothing bad happened, but no other miracle knows that by sundown we shall have had a good Friday. Will will we have really shared the cross with Christ today? Will that have been what we did? So um, what he's doing is writing this poem, Contemporary World, it's our world, but it's structured according to the canonical hours. Everyone is a prayer, every section is a prayer, every hour relating us to the time of the day and something going on on this Good Friday. the, The ironies are among the most subtle I have ever experienced in a poem. I just think they're tremendously subtle. But behind us is this sense of our greatness that we can call each other brothers. You know, that's a great thing. People want to pat themselves on the back. Only because of that we can say, oh, men are brothers. We look to each other. The irony is that while we're doing that, the crowd sees only one thing, an epiphany of that which does whatever is done. We don't even see when we're calling each other brothers how caught we are in this scapegoating mechanism. Um, so it's a very, very subtle poem. It's very, I think it's convicting. Um, it's an it's a extraordinary poem. It's an affirmation of everything great in us as humans, but it's a reminder that there's something underneath us that we are being asked to answer. Um, so let me stop. Any questions or comments or... Um, what's your response to the poem so far? We've got a couple of other sections to do yet, but what's your response to it? Heather? What's, 
No, I think it's profound. It's beautiful. Um, yeah, there's so much there. It's really just a beautiful, well done poem. Yeah. I'm enjoying it tremendously. Oh, I'm glad. I'm really glad. Melody, were you going to say something? I don't believe you. I don't Tell me what's on your heart. I want to know what's on your heart and mind. So when my daughter, who just graduated from college, was in kindergarten, on her first grade card, I got a note from the teacher, and it said, yikes, because she wasn't understanding the alphabet. And my daughter loved to listen to stories and read. But I found out that she needed to hear, she needed to learn it all and then put it all together in order to understand it. That was the type of learner that she was. And that is how I feel about these things. I mean, I, I love the bits and pieces of this poem, but it's, you know, I can't wait to finish it kind of to, to figure it all out in the end. So stick with me. Just no, I not. There's no way I'm losing. There's no way I'm... Um, if we break, it's going to because you're leaving me, not because I'm leaving you. Um, okay. All I can say is bless you and your daughter. If um, if I have a chance to meet her, I'll um, I'll have things that she probably already knows about her mother. But anyway, anybody else before we turn from this poem? Stephanie, you've not been around. What's your response? I think it's a lovely poem. Um, I love the sort of more of simple simplistic language yep. but you know once you delve into it um, it blossoms yep yep one of the great ironies for me I mean they're profound um, Auden was a graduate of uh, Oxford or Cambridge I can't remember in England there's just nothing if you've read um, his criticism the shield of Achilles is a collection of criticism some of the stuff in there is just brilliant Ab absolutely brilliant but it's all in an ordinary commonplace language I, I don't see Cambridge or Oxford. There's nothing pretentious. It, uh, um, it you know, it reminds me of that group that went to America. I mean, uh, Europe, Paris. Hemingway, Fitzgerald. You know, all the poets, Frost. Everybody was there in Paris. And it just seemed to me there was this understanding that poetry was in a crisis. That something had to happen because the modern everybody was under the influence of the modern sciences, and they were all determinism. There was man had no free will. Hemingway, Hemingway finally broke out of it with Old Man of the Sea. If we ever stay that long, we just we did it in St. Francis. We did a short. The short stories are dark, very very dark. Old Man of the Sea goes to another world. But you can, my sense is when you look at all those people coming together, that it's a post-Christian world. All the sciences have destroyed Christianity. Man has no free will. He's he's a product of evolutionary forces of Darwin, of Freud, and but something's happening in that that crisis that um, the, is, the, is the result that people, they could not proselytize, they could not evangelize, people were not going to hear them. They were all well-educated. Well so they had to use a language and, and speak to an audience that was not disposed to Christianity and yet somehow make us aware of what was at stake, what was being lost. And I think um, Odd's poem does that really well, and I was so glad for your comment on the language, because it's true. I mean, he's using street language. It's just, you know, this is not Cambridge, Oxford. Um, but what he's describing underneath is terribly subtle, and it exposes us 
I just think it convicts us. It says whether you know it or not, you know, <laughs> you want this day to be like every other day, but it's Good Friday. There's um, anyway, it's a it's a profound poem. So I'm glad you're enjoying it. You guys finish reading it, okay? We'll we'll do the next we'll do the next section. It's a short section. The knowns. It's the ninth hour, um, mid afternoon. What we know to be not here. I'll read the opening lines. What we know to be not possible, though time after time foretold by wild hermits, by shaman and sibyl, gibbering in their trances, or revealed to a child in some chance rhyme like will and kill comes to pass before we realize it. We are surprised at the ease and speed of our deed and uneasy. It's barely three mid-afternoon, yet the blood of our sacrifice is already dry on the grass. So the image of the victim becomes explicit, finally. It's here. But what's this thing we know to be not possible, but it comes to pass before we realize it? What comes to pass? Never mind. Read it and let's, I want to hear your answers next week. We're going to start next class with a quiz. And only one of you have to take it. It is Stephanie. God, I need to stop. Somebody, somebody stop me. Please stop me. Oh, God. I was going to say I can't come next week, but now I can. So if, <laughs> if Stephanie has to take the quiz, I'm good. <laughs> Okay. Oh God. Bless your souls, you guys. Okay. Let's do let's do Boethius. Okay. Um boy, too much, too much. Um I just want to get us going on this tonight because the poem to me was a lot. So um a couple of things on Boethius before we leave. Um as I said earlier, we're, we're entering a new world, but I want to just make a couple comments in the world that we've just left. You guys are amazing. You guys really are amazing. I can't say it. You guys are amazing. Just amazing. Um, you just did the Iliad and the Odyssey and the Aeneid. How many people even have a, you know, have a clue? We just left a pre-Christian world. It's a pagan world. And I hope everybody saw that Homer and Virgil were these extraordinary poets who had a, some, a sense of something in nature that we've completely lost in the modern world. The Greeks called it a logos, a word, a meaning, an order, a meaning to things. And they um, were keen about it. They, there was a divine order. They tried to sh show an order to it in their gods, the way the gods came into being and the way they interacted. Um, you know, that the earlier gods devoured, time, devoured, Kronos devoured his children, time devours. That they were so aware of some order and some dissolution, some something working against that order. And in the Trojan War, we saw that what was at issue, God bless, just so ironic. What was at issue was man's very existence in a city. That what was at stake in the Iliad was a city, and the battle going on in the city involved two civilizations, east and west, truly east and west, largely Greek and Asian, but the Asians were made of lots of different peoples, so it really showed two very different civilizations. 
and we, we talked about this, you know, when Achilles re-enters the war, the gods line up, and the western gods, for the most part, defeat the eastern gods. That there's an order, and when they go to war, and that war between the gods is resolved, it, it's a way of indicating that something spiritually is being resolved in Achilles. When he re-enters the war, he's already admitted his fault, and he's accepted his death. So in one way, we already see that Homer is approaching Christ, that he saw that it's only when a man admits the truth about himself that he can overcome his weaknesses and something will happen. A new armor was given to him. We talked about the importance of that, right? The armor he'd received before was from Thetis, his mother. And it was good. It, it helped him. Patroclus wore it. He died. Hector wanted it because it was Achilles' armor. He died. The new armor that was made for Achilles represented a new way of standing in the world. That it represented this shift from, a shift in the sense that it showed a man moving from a state of ignorance, really, to a state of self-knowledge. He saw something about himself. He let his men down. Patroclus died. And um, he enters the war knowing he's going to die. So there's this moment of self-recognition, of self-discovery, a new set of armor. Once he enters the war, nobody can defeat him. Okay. And when that moment happens, we can talk about it in terms of the parousia. We've talked about that word. It's the word the church uses to describe the second coming, the return of the king. It was there in Homer. It's there in Virgil. It was there during the Middle Ages, Arthur, King Arthur. It's there in Tolkien. Yeah, the, the Fellowship of the Ring, the, when Aragon comes back, the return of the king. That underneath the church is this belief that Christ will come in glory and judgment. And he will wreck, wreck terror. People will scatter. It's going to be a terrifying moment. When Achilles returns to the war, that's what it is. Remember when he makes that shout, where he returns to the war, 20 Trojans die. You know, they crash against each other. So, the Iliad is about a reordering of man's understanding of himself. That in that war, we see two civilizations going to battle against each other, killing each other, because of a false sense of honor. It's what I called at some point this, this false heroism of the male ego. You know, men killing each other and they have power over each other and can take booty from each other to show how good they are. Right? You, we talked about this. Yes, everybody's... Heather, who is that? Who are you? Are you going to introduce yourself? Who are you? Come back here. No, you come back here. Who is she? Heather, who are you? What a beautiful smile. Are you going to introduce yourself? God, what a beautiful smile. Say hi. 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 Who are you? Can I ask? What is it? My name's Amelie. 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 She's, um, she's my youngest. It's good to meet you, Amelie. What a lovely smile. Your mother shows in you. Yeah. Good to meet you. Good to meet you. Um, where are we? New sense of honor. Yeah. She's beautiful. God. Um. Amelie, you keep on your mother. You tell your mother to stay at her work, yeah? 
Um, a new sense of honor, that honor did not depend on external things, booty, possessions, horses, armor, and highest on the list is women. That men tend to objectify each other for the sake of their own egos. It's this false sense of male heroism. We've been here, yeah, no questions on it, I'm assuming, yeah. But Achilles steps out of it. You know, remember in the ninth book he said, such things are things I need not. I think I'm already honored in Zeus's ordinance. That that's a moment when man discovers there's something intrinsically good about him. It's divine. He's a human being, but he has a divine spark in him, something transcendent. Amelie, I'm going to test you next week. Robert, stop. <laughs> God, she... No, I'm not. <laughs> um, so, a new sense of honor. And we're watching a civilization be destroyed. A city is destroyed. In the Odyssey, we see Odysseus, the, the victor, coming home. And we, we have a story told us about a man returning to a marriage, a family. Homer is very clear about the disorders of war. Back in Ithaca, for 10 years, there's been no ruler. The, so the men have grown up with no fathers, and we're seeing the clear effects of that. Take a father out of the household when you've got young men, and the chances of raising them well are not good. Young boys need fathers. Um, all the suitors had none. They're violent, disorderly, given to their appetites. They have no rule. Um, Odysseus, and remember, Nestor and Menelaus have good marriages, that's what we learn in the beginning in the Telemachi, but, but we learn that there's something else that Odysseus can bring because of his adventures, what he learns. And what we learn is that there's this metaphysical reality to things, these archetypes. We've gone through them. The Lestrigonese woman, Calypso, um, Circe, um, the Sirens, all of them. The, um, the Cyclops, those are all images of archetypes that exist in all the people that he will encounter, including his wife. He has got to learn to come to terms with those for him to restore order at home. That's what the Odyssey is about. So Homer gives us a new understanding of marriage. It surpasses the understanding of marriage that people had in that day because from what we've seen, the understanding would be that men would have women and treat them as objects. Um, what we see in the Odyssey is that both Odysseus and Penelope have stories. Clearly, Odysseus' story is far more important. He's the man. He's got to bring order. I think one of the things that he's showing us at the end is when he defeats the hundred suitors, it's Homer's way of showing that Odysseus has reached a point where he's capable of defeating all that's lawless and disordered in his own passions. When he does that, he can take his place with Polemic, or, uh, Penelope, and the two of them will have something other marriages don't have. They will have something complete because they're not objects to each other. We, we saw in the Odyssey what we didn't see in the Iliad. We, we saw in the Odyssey that women treat men as objects all the time. We saw that again and again and again. Calypso, Circe, all the queens and the dead in the afterlife never remember their husbands. 
All they remembered were their possessions, their things. What they wanted was their possessions. So women are just as given to using men as men are women, but they do it in a different way. When Penelope and Odysseus come together, it's a union of two people who see each other as people. She's endured, she's lived with hope, um, she did everything can to be faithful. Um, 20 years uh, is a long test. Um, there's that moment, remember when the two of them come together, when Homer describes Athena coming in and stopping time. It, it's a beautiful, beautiful moment. She stops time. So for the first time in the Odyssey, in the Iliad and the Odyssey, a man and woman are taken outside of an epic action. Because an epic action, by nature of itself, is always dealing with evil and brutality and violence. And so we're seeing a new, um, a new way of understanding marriage, basically. So the Iliad deals with individual honor, the Odyssey with um, marriage. In both of them, they end with the return of the king. Achilles going back into battle, Odysseus taking off his disguise, and doing battle and restoring order. And in both of them, bringing judgment and violence and in order to achieve an order. The same thing was picked up, we saw in Virgil. What Virgil did was take that whole past, both the Iliad and the Odyssey, he incorporated it into the Aeneid, um, except with a new spirit. It's no longer individual excellence, or even the excellence of a man and woman in marriage. It's not Achilles and Odysseus and Penelope. It's the city. That there's something greater than man, and that Aeneas is a greater hero in lots of ways than Achilles and Odysseus, because his aim is not for himself, or even for his marriage. It's for the common good of everybody. So scene after scene after scene after scene, we see Aeneas having to give up himself. What he does goes so far beyond Achilles and Odysseus, they don't even come close. The, the, the action of the Aeneid is com often complete, repeated self-surrender. You give yourself up for the good of another. That good was Rome, the founding of Rome. So Virgil was the great poet of, who took the whole Homeric Greek world into the Roman and transformed, I would say redeemed it. He showed that whatever great things Homer showed still lacked something that there was still a greater greatness, and we get it in him. That man is capable of this great self-sacrifice for others, for a common good. The irony, the irony is that nobody saw this better than Virgil, nobody. And yet, Virgil saw that even though the city was the greatest thing, it was not enough. It was the very greatest thing man could do, but it still lacked something. And that book came out just before the coming of Christ. Now, how amazing is that? I just hope everybody, I hope everybody hears that. So something was going on in these poets, and our world doesn't even know it. You guys do. That means your burdens are heavier. I hope you guys know that this isn't, this just isn't nice literature. The rest of your lives are going to be full of burdens. Heavier burdens. Um, anyway, that's where we were. And remember when Aeneas returns and he has to do battle with all the people in Italy, he discovers once he goes to Italy and, and has that time with Evander, he discovers that his actual origins were Italy, 
the Dardanians, Dardanians came there. They left and went east to Troy. So he's actually going home. So in leaving Troy and going to Italy, he's returning to his origins without knowing it. That's why Eliot had that line, in my end is my beginning, in my beginning is my end. And the part of the beauty of what Virgil did is remember that in the Iliad and the Odyssey, we experience the destruction of a city from the point of view of the victors. Troy is destroyed, a civilization is destroyed. Out of the ashes of that city, out of defeat, comes this great victory. He couldn't be closer to Christ. I mean, it just stuns me. Just, it just leaves me stunned. Makes me convinced that he had read the Old Testament in, in um, Isaiah. He, it, it was too much a part of his sensibility, too much a part of his heart, that he could have felt the wound of losses again and again and again and again, and not despair. He didn't despair. I mean, name a poet in the ancient world who knew defeat better than him, or, or who, who knew the cost of wounds better than Virgil. There was none. The, the whole cost of Aeneas's life is wound, sacrifice, giving up again and again and again. And he doesn't despair. He keeps going on. So it's an image of Christ in the world. No matter what happens, we are asked to go on. If we lose our studies, our pools, our backyards, what, our wealth, our whatever, we have to keep going. Um, that's our belief. So out of the ashes came this extraordinary city. was unlike any other city. It defeated Carthage. It, it defeated all of its rivals. Um, and it's, um, it's amazing. Um, and during the Pax Romana, when Augustus is the Caesar, he calls for a consensus, or a census, sorry, a census. And that's a significant act for the church because it, it means that it's during that moment when Rome is unified, the ruler of the world, that Christ comes into the world. So that when he goes to the cross, the understanding is he's doing it for everybody. So all of this precedes Christ. And in some way, it, it is all looking towards him, even though the poets didn't know him. So that's how great uh, what we've been doing is. I don't think I can add anything to that. Um, I, I want to I want to talk about the Job story to, to get us to Boethius, but any questions about that? Does everybody, any questions or comments about why that's is so important? Why we spent all this time on this, this pagan literature? God, because it helps us understand our Christian faith. Are you cold? Not now, but I Anybody? Stephanie, you have any questions or comments? No, sir, I'm enjoying this very much. I was reading along, but I wasn't able to come to class. So, yeah. I'm on, so I kept up, just wasn't able to come. Good for you. It's good to see you. Really, is good. Even though I'm giving you a hard time, it's really good to see you. You know that. You know that. No questions or comments on any of this? It's been so important. I cannot tell you how I'm glad I am to be able to have done this with you guys. It's, you know, um, a couple of years ago, I was invited to give a lecture series with some other people at um, Wyoming Catholic College. And the theme of it was recovery, the recovery of a Christian heritage or something. Recovery of the Catholic faith. Recovery of Catholic faith. 
my opening lines to the group was, um, we can't recover. It's not about a recovery. Um, because the Christian faith keeps moving on. We can't go back. We have to carry the past forward. So it's always taking us into a mystery, into something. We can't. Remember, one of the things we saw, in the, just so important, one of the things we saw in Aeneas, remember what happened when Aeneas came to um, Brothutrum, where he, where he met um, um, Hellenus and Andromache? It was a small Troy. It was a miniature Troy. The riverbed was dry. It was dead. It was Virgil's way of showing it. You can't go back. You cannot duplicate the past. You can't go back to the past. If your parents had a good life and you lost it, you cannot go back. You go on. If we go back to the past because it was happy and we don't want to lose it, we're half dead. We're supposed to be living in mystery. We carry the past forward to redeem it. I, I, I'm, sometimes I'm reluctant to say that because it sounds so easy. I hope you know from reading the Aeneid, it's not. It's a terrible burden. It's a, it, it's a cross. It's much easier to go back and do what's done. So one of the things this literature has given us is that this great past has to be carried forward. Benedict and, and John Paul both said, one of the most important tasks we have in the modern world is to retrieve that past and make it living. That's from those two popes. So you guys have been doing a remarkable job. You guys have been doing a remarkable job. Bless your souls. No questions? Connie, you're inside. You snuck in. I didn't even see you sneak in. <laughs> no questions? Karen, Bob, did you have a question? You, Karen, you look like you have a question. No, we were just talking about how wonderful that summation you just gave us was. I mean, it was just such a cool class. We we're enjoying it a lot. Wow, wow. Thank you for that. Thank you. You're a cool group. <laughs> I mean that. I mean that. I mean that. Um, Bless your souls. Bless your souls. Sorry Mike's not here tonight. I think he would enjoy it. Okay, um, Boethius. Couple things. Couple things. Um, just in terms of his life biography, um, Boethius is a really interesting man. He, he's probably the most important writer in the Middle Ages between St. Augustine and St. Thomas. And I'm not exaggerating that. You know, everybody knows St. Augustine, everybody knows St. Thomas. Few people know Boethius, but in some ways, um, he, he really is one of the most brilliant people of the Middle Ages. Um, he lived before St. Thomas, so he didn't have him to help him, but, but he was in a position to take everything that Plato and Aristotle had written and St. Augustine and synthesize it. So his thinking represents a wonderful um, bringing together of classical literature and philosophy with a Christian faith. Um, he, he, took, he loved philosophy and he took it seriously. He tried to live his life by it. He ended up in a, well, so he lived at a time after the seat of power had moved from Rome to um, Constantinople. By the way, I, I hope um, 
you all know how to get to the to the our blog, right? And the the text that I drop off in that every once in a while, right? There's a piece in there that gives a short historical, it's a thumbnail sketch. I think I called it a thumbnail sketch. So in the early history of the church, it's really important for you to read. It's only two pages. It's really important for you to read. It's a very brief summary of some events that show the importance of the church, you know, in those centuries, and some of the thinkers and, and, and a couple of things that, that sort of give us a, a sketchy principle at work in a number of stages so you can distinguish the stages. When the seat of power moved from Rome to um, Constantinople, um, a, a number of conflicts were set in motion, not just in terms of the power between East and West, but between the Roman world and the Greek world, politically. The language in the Byzantium world and the Constantinople world was Greek. The, the, the dominant language in Rome was, was Latin. By the time Boethius lived, there were already powerful political differences between those two worlds and, and political rivalries. There were um, conspiracies in Rome against the king. Emperor. Sorry? Emperor. No, the king. And, which, the king. Um, the, um, and a number of people were accused of plotting against him. Boethius opposed them, but they accused him of being involved in treacheries. It's, we're actually going to read it. He'll, he'll actually... Um, name some of the people. It's in the first book, so we'll touch on them. But he was accused, and Theodoric, the king, took him seriously, or took those accusations seriously, and condemned him to death for treachery. So Boethius will be condemned to death for crimes he didn't commit. And he will say in the consolation that um, one of the reasons people opposed him was one of the reasons people opposed Socrates because he loved philosophy and tried to live it when they didn't. If you know anything about the Socratic dialogues, you know that Socrates has these dialogues where he's constantly arguing with people and showing them that they don't know what they claim to know and they hate him. Um, something like that was going on with Boethius because he loved learning and people hated him for it. So the animosities against him were pretty great. It, 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 it ended, so he ended up in jail accused of treasons um, when he wasn't guilty of any of the charges. Um, he, he will be executed shortly after this story. He writes it in jail, and this is what we get of him. But to the, the two works that I think that he's most famous for are this is this work and um, The Constellation of Philosophy, and his commentary on the Trinity. His commentary on the Trinity, if you want, I can drop it in the box. I've, I've, it's just a short thing. You can look at it. It's metaphysical, it's theological, but it's, it's really important. In Dante's Paradiso, Boethius is one of the most brilliant people in the circle of men that Dante shows. He will, he will show two circles of men in the Dominicans and the Franciscans, and among them are the wisest men in the world, and some of them were not Christian. I mean, it shows how aware St. Thomas was in Dante that wisdom would place you close to God, even if you weren't Christian. <coughs> but Boethius is included in that number. Um, Chaucer loved Boethius. Chaucer could not have done it. You'll see why when we get in a couple of classes. We're going to get to a point, 
well, I'll be shocked if you don't get knocked off your seat, because Boethius is going to make some claims that are, to lots of moderns, outrageous. Dante loved him. Chaucer loved him. And St. Thomas loved him. His commentaries on the Trinity did a lot for St. Thomas's understanding of the Trinity himself. So he's one of the most important figures of the middle, middle ages, you know, that middle period between St. Augustine and, um, and Thomas. Um, one of the other thing that I just wanted to mention before we actually look at the text, the other thing to keep in mind is that the story that Boethius is dealing with today is based on the Job story. Um, you can see that is the backstory. If you've read this, the Job story, you know that it begins with Satan coming to God and saying that Job is only righteous because God's given him all these things. You know, he's got property and he's happy and he's well off. Um, it's a great challenge to Jewish self-righteousness. You know, so long as you're pros prosperous, you'll be happy. So God gives Satan... Um, the freedom to go after Job and test him, believing that Job will stand up to these tests. But at the beginning of the Job story is this agon, this contest between God and Satan. Um, Satan's challenging God and saying, the righteousness of this man isn't real. You know, it's, it's based on an illusion. So Satan starts to go to work. By the way, there's the prince of the world, back in the Auden poem, the prince of the world. Um... He goes to work on Job, and Job loses everything. And immediately, it's just so, this is such a good story, immediately three of Job's friends, very Jewish, make it clear to Job that the reason he's lost everything is because he's sinned. Those losses are proof of your sins. It's a little bit frightening because I think a lot of us, you know, are so aware of our sins in the past that, you know, and the disorders that come... But um, one of the things that we learned from the Job story is a hard, I mean, we are responsible for our past. We have to carry it forward. That's one of our burdens. But one of the truths that we take from Christ and the Job story and some other works is we carry our sins forward. We have to change them. But it's important for us to be careful and not forget that those sins themselves aren't evidence, or I mean the calamities that we face or the hardships we faced aren't evidence that they're proof that we've sinned and God's punishing us. Because that's the argument those three men make. Job withstands them in argument. It's a, it's a fierce dialogue. It's an agon between Job and each of his friends. It ends, well, so through that period, Job keeps accusing God and wondering why he's being mistreated. When, and when all the men are making it worse because they're saying it's because you've done something wrong. And at the end, God will vindicate Job. He will say to the three men, you go do penance. You go make sacrifices because Job, Job is the one who's right. You're all wrong. And um, he restores Job. He gives him children and property tenfold. And Job dies an old man. Um, but the issue here is the same issue there. Um, Job asked the question, Boethius asked it, why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? And why does he allow um, evil men to prosper? For God to allow that suggests God is not a good God. 
If he's a God of goodness, how can he let good men suffer and evil men prosper? Yeah? Think about our world today. I mean, we're, we're in, we're, I hope everybody see. we're in Achilles' world. We're, we live in a world that the Iliad has already unmasked for us. We think because we have property and, and material wealth, we're among the elect. That's a very Protestant notion here. The proof of our salvation, that's a Protestant notion, the gospel of prosperity. That the proof that we're among the saved is our prosperity. We're the good ones. So nobody has the right to criticize us. The Job story takes that apart. That's not a proof of our goodness. Even though it's a, it was a proof of the Iliad, I hope, I hope everybody sees there's an irony in that now. Um, that Job story takes that apart. But it raises this question, why does God allow good people to suffer and evil people to prosper? I'm going to give two brief answers to that that are not Boethius' answer, but I'm afraid that if I don't get him in here, I'll miss him because I, um, I want our focus is going to be on Boethius. For God to allow evil suggests evil in God. So we're already in another world from Homer and Virgil because we've entered into a world in which now Boethius is going to show us, I almost don't want to give this away, God is a good God. He's, he's doing something with this, you know, evil men prospering and good men suffering. He's doing something that we have to understand better to really understand God. And in that sense, what he's doing is going beyond Plato and Aristotle. So we have to work through this book to see. It's very short, it's very brief, but it's profound. But it's, it's, it's the great question, it's the great problem at the heart of this book, okay? If God is a good God, how could he allow evil to happen to good men? For a God to do that means he's bad. There's some bad in him. Some, there's something wrong with that God. I'm going to give two answers to that question. These are mine, so <laughs> you can fault me, not not Boethius on, on these. Um, and then we'll turn to Boethius. Um, I'm going to give two answers to that question. And the reason I want to do this is because I often hear priests raise that question and sometimes I'm not always... I'm not always satisfied with the answers that priests give. So pardon me if there's an element of presumption here. I'm, it's a... It's obviously a question dear to my heart because I think it's one close to all of our hearts that we all struggle with it. So here's a couple of answers. One is because we owe God a death. He allows punishments. This is profound, I think. We owe God a life. We owe God a death. We disobeyed God, right? And we lost paradise. Our death was one of the results. Sin and death were two of the consequences of that. We're not Protestant. The Protestant believes that the consequences of the fall were complete, that we were ruined, we're depraved. That once we left Eden, we were, in, in essence, inherently evil, depraved. Catholics don't believe that. We believe we were wounded and we have burdens to carry and pick up, a cross to carry. 
but we are not depraved. But one of the consequences of our disobedience was death. We owe God a life. Death was one of the consequences. We're all going to die. It's one of the punishments of the fall. Now the question is, if we owe God a death, what has Christ done for us in the way of helping with that? I mean, would our attitude towards death be the same if Christ had not died? Remember, one of the lines in, in Auden's poem was that something happened that was impossible to happen. Remember that line? What we know to be not possible comes to pass. How could a God die? That's at the center of our faith. So we owe God a life, every one of us. Um, Christ redeemed us, but he asked us to share in that redemption by sharing in his death. So initially, we, we disobeyed God. I think the full implications of that disobedience don't become clear until Christ. Now I'm really entered into a catechetical stage here because I'm, we're not dealing. I'm, this is an area where you know I'm not comfortable, but I have pretty strong feelings about this. Um, what we did in our original disobedience, the implications of it, I don't think become perfectly clear until Christ. And then they do. Because like the crowd, with the crowd, we killed God. We put him on a cross. So in that act, we showed that there's something going on underneath all of us that most of the time we don't want to see, that we killed God. So we owe God a death, and um, so part of our life involves a suffering. It entails a suffering as a penance, a way of taking on the, the death that we owe God. Um, if that isn't clear, let me go back for a second here, just to be, because Dante will make this clear when we get here. After we lost paradise, there were two things God could have done. This, this should make it clear. And I hope everybody sees this. After we disobeyed God, he could have done one of two things. He could have damned us. We disobeyed him and deserved damnation, separation from him. We committed, or put it this way, we committed a sin we ourselves could not pay for. Right? We're humans. How do we, how do we pay for a sin against God? For that to happen would require a God-man. Somebody would have to be God because it was God we offended, and he'd have to be man because it was a man who offended him. Is that clear? Did I say that too fast? Good, okay. We offended God. There's no way we could atone for that sin. So the result of that would have been, we would have been damned. The way It's here, the way the angels were. They broke from God. They're damned, the, the fallen angels. But... We know that we didn't make it as a we didn't we didn't disobey God from disobedience. We were tricked. It's one of the reasons God made an allowance for us. There were extenuations for us in ways that wasn't true. The angels, right? The angels chose to defy him. They left. Satan tricked Eve, and then Eve defied God by going along with Eve. Adam. Or Adam, sorry. So um God could have done one of two things. He could have damned us, or he could have just let us off. And I hope the 
reason for the second one, what he did in the second one is clear. Why didn't he just let us off? Yeah, I am. Well, if we don't take some responsibilities for our sins, what's going to happen the next time we face the temptations with them? Yeah. So he chose a middle way that he redeemed us and asked us to join in his, cooperate with him in his redemption. He invited us to pick up a cross. Okay. So our suffering is our part of responding to his effort to answer our original sin in a way that we could not and still participate in the atonement of it. Is that clear? So, the first answer for me why God allows that is because we owe him a death. We owe him a life. And the second is, I think he does it. You know, this question, why does God give permission to evil in the world is what I'm trying to answer here. Why does he allow good people to suffer? And why does he allow evil men to prosper? One is because we owe him a death, suffering. It's something we have to take up to, to return to him. And the second is because um, it's his way of protecting our free will to give us freedom. And if he gives us this freedom, because we've fallen, it means we can choose to do evil. We do. We commit sins. That's why we have confession. Um, and I hope everybody's thought about that. Um, by allowing evil, by, by, by giving permission to sin, he's protecting our free will. Um, and because, because of our experience of that, it puts us in a position of having to take more seriously weighing our decisions. Because so often we make decisions that we look back on in horror. I mean, we look back and think how stupid, how light. That we make decisions because we're so intellectually capable, we think we're so good, and years later we look at the effects of it and think, God, how stupid. Because we're so gifted, we can, we can make decisions too easily. We don't weigh the consequences. Because oftentimes we can't see the full complication consequences of our decisions, right? So by, allow, by protecting our free will, he protects the greatest gift to us, our own freedom, but he also helps us to, to weigh that freedom, the cost of our choices, because we learn from them, we get better. Hopefully we get closer to him from the mistakes we make, right? So those are my answers to the you know, Boethius's question. But the question, the major question that, that we have to face in setting out in this work is, why does God allow bad things to happen to good people and good things to happen? Because at the beginning, we're going to encounter Boethius, who is being condemned to a death he does not deserve. Now, let me start. We're at time, but I want to just start this here just to get us going. So the book begins, page one. I'll just take two minutes because we're at, we're at class time, but I'll take two minutes. So, the book begins with Boethius in jail awaiting execution. Um, I who once wrote songs with joyful zeal am driven by grief to enter weeping mode. 
See the muses, cheeks all torn, dictate. So the, the muses of poetry have been singing to him, encouraging him to grieve. We all know that. Somebody's hurt us, we're going to go into our room and sulk. Or get angry at the guy and then sulk, or her, or she's going to get angry at, you know. We're going to feel sorry for ourselves and indulge ourselves. They were the glory of my happy youth, and they still comfort me in hapless age. Old age came suddenly by suffering sped, because of all the difficulties, his sufferings have increased. And grief then bade her government begin. Death would be a blessing if it spared the... <laughs> Somebody kill me because my grief is too much. I hope you all hear the self-pity here because he's overwhelmed for it. What's her response? Suddenly, she was of awe-inspiring appearance, her eyes burning and keyed beyond the usual power of men. She was so full of years that I could hardly think of her as my own generation, and yet she possessed a vital color, undiminished vigor. It goes on. She has this long gown, and she seems towering, and yet she seems somehow human. And her gown, even though it looks eternal, is worn. Okay? Now, I'm just going to stop here, but this is what she says to him. See if I can find this. Sorry, give me this one more minute here. She says, um, she gets angry at him and the muses, and she chases the muses away. She says on page six, when she saw that it was not I, she, when, when she saw that it was not that I would not speak, but that dumbstruck I could not, she gently laid her hand on my breast and said, it's nothing serious, only, touch am only a touch of amnesia that he's suffering, the common disease of deluded minds. Um, this notion of amnesia, of what Plato would have called anamnesis, of forgetting. Now hold on to that and give this some thought, okay? Because at the center of the mass is this moment when we have been asked by Christ to remember him. Do this in remembrance of me. She's saying to him, the problem with you is you've lost the sense of your beginnings, where you came from, and your end. You've lost your memory. So one of the most important things for you right now is to recover a sense of your memory. Who you are, what your nature is, what your beginning is, and what your end. And I hope you can hear in some ways we're back in Virgil. In my end is my beginning. In my beginning is my end. Boethius will not be able to come out of this state until he recovers a sense of who he is. And the first step in helping him is to say to him, the problem with you is that you've been reading too much poetry. <laughs> the problem with you is you've got to stop reading literature and start reading philosophy. So I'll leave you with that. That's where we're starting, okay? It's a wonderful book. It's, I think it's extraordinary. She's, and what, it's interesting. We'll, we'll go into the method. It's really interesting to see her. She takes him where, she, where he is. She's very gentle and moving forward. She doesn't hit him with everything right at the beginning. She says, you're not ready for these things. I'll give you these things as you toughen up. But very gradually, her response is, you've got to get tougher. So she's going to apply her medicine very slowly. So the question is, what is her medicine? What does she do to bring Boethius to a peace of mind when he is grieving because he's been treated unfairly? He's going to be executed for a crime that he, that he didn't commit. All of us know that experience when somebody accuses us of something 
we don't deserve. Um, I don't. I don't deal with those moments very easily. I, m maybe the rest of you do, but I think it's a struggle for most of us. But she's gonna. She's gonna help him see something that will give him a strength to deal with this wrong. Okay. So it goes right to our faith. It goes right to the center of our faith. So let me stop there. Any questions before we stop for the night? We'll spend the next few weeks on Boethius and then we'll start Dante. But any any questions for tonight? Stephanie, I'm so glad to see you again. I really am. I really am. God, I've just... I miss that teacher's table. <laughs> well, too. I do. No, I really do. I mean, I just... It's a promise for me. You know, I want to see young people learning this stuff because young people don't know this today. Um... We all need it. We all need it. But the world is in bad shape. And I'm so, it's such a grief for me to watch what young people are being taught today. It, I mean, it's awful, you know, to, I think you all know that. All of us know it. It's a sad state of affairs. Anyway, it's good to see you. It's good to see you guys. No comments on what we just done? Connie, who's that behind you on the wall? That in the picture, right behind you. Who's who's that behind you? That's my mother. Is that your mom? That's she alive? Mom. No. No. She's not. Um, nice smile. She's not. Yeah, she's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Know where you get your smile from. Wow. Your mommy. <laughs> wow, good for you. Okay. Um, you guys have a good week. Um, all of you stay safe. And keep us all... In prayers, would you all keep praying for each other? Grateful for what you're doing. Genuinely grateful. Keep it up, okay? You guys have a good week. Thank, Thank you. you. See you next Thank week. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye, y'all. Bye. Thank you. Thank you. I don't know how to Thank do you. it. Leave.